Hello and welcome to the European Football Show on the World Football Index. Um, as ever, I'm your host, Alan Feely, coming to you from Seville in the south of Spain. And I'm joined today by uh, four fantastic guests from different parts of Europe. Um, in Germany, as always, is Jasmine Baba. How are things with you, Jasmine? Dizzy. <laughs> Anyone following the Bundesliga has probably had a brain meltdown like I have this week. <laughs> story after story over here. Absolutely. Um, also joining us is Alasdair McKenzie in Rome, the capital of Italy. How are you, Alasdair? Yeah, I'm doing very well, thanks. Um, yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. Pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. Great to have you. Uh, in Galway, John O'Sullivan. How are you, John? I'm great, thanks. Looking forward to being on. Like Jasmine, having a brain meltdown, but not because of the Bundesliga, just trying to navigate through the mundanity of lockdown life in the west of Ireland. <laughs> uh, Rory, how are things? Rory is with coming to us from Scotland. Yeah, I'm great as well. Um, just to sort of echo those thoughts, it's that part of the season where everything gets distilled and you're like, oh my God, that could be the end of something or the start of something. Absolutely. Very, very busy times and we're definitely in the business end of the season. Um, let's begin with the European action and Manchester City uh, 2, Borussia Dortmund 1. Uh, obviously, Man City lost to Leeds the weekend 2-1. Marcelo Bielsa's lead giving a bit of a... Uh, a bit of a shock, uh, Pep Guardiola coming up against Marcelo Bielsa. Um, but the game against Dortmund was slightly different. I think that maybe their energies are kind of more sharply honed when it comes to the European action, given how far ahead they are in Europe and in, in, in the Premier League at the moment. Um, for you, Jasmine, from a Dortmund perspective, uh, what did you make of this game? Because obviously they weren't highly favoured going into the game um, and they followed it up with a 3-2 victory over Stuttgart at the weekend. So is there much kind of confidence um, in Germany uh, that Dortmund could perhaps uh, do something against them when City come to Germany for the return leg? It's funny that we're talking about this because it feels like everyone feels that their loss to Manchester City because of that away goal was a really good result. But based on their win against Stuttgart, that has damp- dampened expectations of the second leg. Um, because of that match, they showed everything in that match that they weren't really against City. So they were very naive against Stuttgart in the way that they played. Um, it could have easily not been 3-2. Um, and Dortmund could have lost the points quite easily. Both teams, kind of, well, Dortmund over overperformed their XG. So I think it has put a bit of a dampener on that result against City because they feel that um, they if they do the same things that they did against um, Stuttgart, they will get battered by this City team. Um, I don't think it was really a um, bad performance from Dortmund. I think everyone saw their quality and how they could come back there was just a few you know hiccups and this is a team that's also suffered injuries they had to play Knauf who is absolutely great but hasn't seen that much Bundesliga time this season so um, despite their naiveness naivety even that they definitely got a result with that away goal Absolutely. And from a Manchester City perspective, uh, what did you make of this game and obviously the follow-up game against Leeds? Uh, do you think that you know Pep is kind of famous for overthinking these latter-stage Champions League games? Do you think maybe he's learned from his lessons and he's kind of maybe 
taking a more straightforward approach this season? Yeah, it was a lot more straightforward with the team that he went out. But the way that they performed at times, I think we all can agree that the Edison foul on Bellingham was quite a shock and quite bad um, in terms of refereeing performances. Uh, I think I would like to see probably someone a little bit more mature in that lineup. I think Mares was uh, a little bit wasteful. Uh, maybe De Bruyne up front when he, I think, would be a better fit. Maybe not even Stones if he goes Laporte. It might be better. Um, it's just more of the game that they would like to play rather than the kind of Stones-Diaz defence that you see in the league. I think one's very Premier League-focused and the other one's very European-focused. Um, we saw Laporte and Diaz um, during the Gladbach game, and I think that worked very well but I honestly can't put a stake in the second leg and um, it will definitely be an exciting match I think the thing is Dortmund will not be able to win one nil and that's where the problem kind of arises absolutely certainly will be an interesting game um, and it's certainly not over yet that's for sure uh, elsewhere in the Champions League Real Madrid beat Liverpool 3-1 at Val de Bebas just before uh, beating Barcelona 2-1 in the Clasico at the weekend. Um, Liverpool, on the other hand, followed up their kind of demoralising defeat in Madrid uh, with a 2-1 victory over Aston Villa. Just to go to you first, John, on this one, um, what did you make of this game? I know you were very impressed with Zidane's game management uh, and how he set Madrid up. Uh, but from a Liverpool perspective, how disappointing was this game? But at the same time, how kind of almost fortifying was it to go and win against Villa at the weekend when it looked like uh, the way for an Anfield goal was going to go on. Yeah, mea culpa. Like, I'll hold my hands up and I'll say that I, in the past, I didn't always rate Zidane so highly, which is, seems crazy now looking back with retrospect. Uh, I thought he he played this game to an absolute T. And my main impression was that he is such an Italian coach, even though he's French-Algerian. You can tell he's played in Italy. And you can tell he's worked under Carlo Ancelotti, in my opinion, given how adaptable he is in game and how good he is at negating an opposition's strength and then playing to his own sides, uh, to his own side's advantage. So I thought that he done fantastically well, especially in the way he orchestrated Tony Crowes to play high and long over Liverpool's press and into uh, Vinicius Junior. So I think he uh, he's the main takeaway from that game in terms of giving credit to somebody. Uh, from Liverpool's perspective, it was really disappointing. I actually thought they were quite meek for a long time, which is really the opposite of what I thought would happen when I looked at the at the starting lineup because he was quite brave, Jurgen Klopp, that is, in selecting Naby Keita. I thought, okay, Keita is going to use his energy and his vibrancy to press Kroos and to press Modric and to really stop Madrid's attacks at source. But uh, nothing of the sort happened, unfortunately, from a Liverpool's perspective. And, you know, Real Madrid were very worthy to win 3-1 and arguably it, it could have been even more. But yeah, the Aston Villa game, that was uh, that was Liverpool's first home win in the Premier League, would you believe, since December the, the 16th, which is, which is absolutely crazy given that they were 68 games unbeaten over a course of two and a half seasons at Anfield in the Premier League before their first loss uh, a couple of months ago. So it was great for them to get back in a winning track at home and uh, really to throw their hat firmly back into the Champions League qualification race I'm sure we'll touch on it later, but it's you could you could fit a, a Rizla paper in between the teams that are fighting for third and fourth in the Premier League, and uh, it, it's it's so hard to call at this stage. But Liverpool are really 
you know, they're trying to make a good fist of it. But uh, I think in Europe, unfortunately, the race may be run. Although, you know, they have lost in Spain before, before turning around in second legs, quite famously. I guess they are missing the, the might of Anfield this time, though they won't have as many voices uh, urging them on uh, as they did against Barcelona uh, those, all those things two seasons ago. Um, but from a Spanish perspective, Rory, uh, what do you make of this game for Real Madrid and also and how they kind of followed it up with the victory over Barcelona in a classical? Like, I kind of said it a few weeks ago in this podcast and various other places. I mean, while Madrid look the least impressive of the three, um, until until very recently, like I did feel that they've almost kind of refocused after the international break, much like they did last season when they came back from lockdown. In terms of kind of goal, we have ten finals left. Let's win each one, and they just kind of forget everything and they just turn up the gears uh, for the kind of clutch part of the season. I mean, obviously this year they're missing the characters who normally drag them through, namely Sergio Ramos. Uh, but they still have quality in midfield, I suppose. So what did you make of this game, um, as in the, the Liverpool game, and then also how they followed it up with a very kind of gritty victory over Barcelona? Like a very, very good week for Real Madrid, no? I thought, I have to say, I thought Liverpool played into Real Madrid's hands. The Naby Keita selection, as John mentioned, it was brave in a sense, but they just couldn't keep the ball against that midfield. And I think they did miss Thiago, but on the night they really lacked any ability to cause Real Madrid harm. And Real Madrid, as you say, they're maybe not the most impressive team, but they are always the most reliable. And it's that core of absolute winners. They are missing Ramos. They are missing Varane at the moment. But that sort of central three of Casemiro, Modric, Kroos, everyone knows that's the basis of which they work. And Vinicius has come under a lot of criticism for his perhaps lack of end products at times. But he gives Real Madrid something that they need and something they don't have elsewhere, which is pace in behind, the ability to beat a man from a sort of standing start almost. And he's been key for me for in Real Madrid's recent run. Even if he's still missing chances, Real Madrid are creating far more because of him. And then just moving on to that El Clasico, it was Zidane all over again. As Again, to reference John there, he said he was impressed with Zidane's adaptability. And... Against uh, Barcelona, he's, I sort of thought he followed the formula for beating Barcelona the last two times. He had Benzema as the sort of hook. He was the piece around which everything else re- revolved. And then you had Valverde and Vinicius breaking from midfield or from out wide and getting in behind Barcelona. Something that Barcelona just can't really seem to deal with. And that's where Zidane's found his joy again. He crowded that, that midfield, crowded Messi out. And the results were there for all to see. Real setback that Lucas Vasquez will miss the rest of the season, it looks like one of Zidane's most trusted lieutenants. Um, and he's also out of contract at the end of summer, and it's not looking like he's going to stay at Madrid. So he may have played his last game for the club, um, which is unfortunate because he's a very likable character and a very good player. But just really staying in El Clasico at the moment, uh, from a Barcelona perspective, uh, what did you make of the game? Because, you know, they've beaten Valladolid uh, last Monday night in some controversial circumstances. We spoke before the game that maybe Usman Bailey could be key. Uh, it didn't work out that way uh, on Saturday night in a very rainy and uh, windy Valdebebas. But uh, I think, you know... All the kind of word coming from Catalonia at the moment is that the dressing room believes they still have what it takes to win the double. 
uh, and that they're not phased by this defeat. They just see it as a minor setback and they're ready to bounce back when they play Athletic Club in the Copa uh, this weekend. But what did you make of this game from a Barcelona perspective? I thought, again, the, the way that Real Madrid sort of took away their big threats was the most problematic thing for Barcelona because if you look at the three areas where they've really improved this calendar year, so to speak, is out wide, getting Dest and Alba down the flanks. It's in behind, giving Dem- Dembele, giving them that threat, which you mentioned, in behind, a bit of pace, something else for defenders to think about. And it's also in midfield. They've had far more control when they've had Petri, Messi, De Jong, Busquets, all sort of within that central zone and giving them control of the game. None of those things came off for Barcelona against Real Madrid. And that's where they, I think Dembélé was taken out sort of partly by the depth at which Real Madrid sat. You had Militao and Nacho, who are both very fast defenders as well. And then on the other hand, Dest and Alba. I think Alba did get some joy, and that was Barcelona's best hope of creating chances. And some of the their better chances came from that sort of area of the pitch. On the other side, Ferlon Mendy, he's just unbeatable one-on-one. Dest had absolutely no joy, and... I'm yet to find somebody who's had a great deal of joy against Furlong Mendy. What I will say is that I don't think Barcelona will face another side like Real Madrid this season, and therein lies their great hope. They've not had anyone else who's been able to take out that midfield core and been able to nullify them. And so I don't think there's huge amounts of worries. For me, Barcelona, from their perspective... This game came two months too early. They needed a fully fit PK to try and deal with Benzema and they needed Ansu Fati, who was far who is far more lethal and has far more tenacity about him than Ousmane Dembele to cause that major defence problems. And those two players or the absence of a lethal striker, as good as Dembele has been, they were what Barcelona were really missing against Real Madrid for me. I think so. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see how Barcelona get on this weekend when they play Atletica La Cartuja uh, in the second Copa del Rey final of the season. Um, but Bayern Munich lost 2-3 to uh, Paris Saint-Germain in the Champions League this week, Jasmine, and then followed it up with a rather disappointing 1-1 draw with Union Berlin at home in the Bundesliga at the weekend. Um, worrying times for Bayern. I know they kind of, you know, hammered the XG and really kind of battered the PSG goal during that game, but they face quite a difficult task in their hands now, don't they, to kind of try and overcome this deficit after conceding three away goals? Yeah, we kind of called it. Uh, I think I said after the Leipzig match, if they play like they did against Leipzig against a better team or if they did it against PSG, then they'll be in trouble, and that basically happened. Um, it wasn't that the fact that they didn't make any chances. As you said, their extreme was amazing. It's just the fact they didn't have their key man finishing it off. And, you know, they've struggled massively with injuries and basically COVID in the last couple of weeks now. Now Serge Gnabry has been ruled out with COVID. Um, so they really had to just make good use of Chupamoting, Miller, Sani and Komen up front. And then obviously we had Goretzka and Sula come off injured in um, in the Paris Saint-Germain match. So, you know, 
it's it's a difficult place for Bayern to be in because especially with that 1-1 draw against Union Berlin, it was a very B-side because they want to go for the Champions League again. Um, and, you know, it's not that they've got the league wrapped up, it's just they've got such an advantage that they can use a B-side in the meantime for to not overstrain the players that they've got that they would use in the Champions League. Um, so the good thing for Bayern is Marquinhos are out for PSG, it's just been said. So they definitely got the quality and the talent. And I think that game was the pinnacle of, you know, uh, Champions League ties. What's interesting is, especially at Bayern Munich at the moment, there's a lot of talk between um, Hansi, manager Hansi Flick and Sorry, Sally Hammers, Hammers Hatlovic. I need to have his name up because I always mess it up. If I <laughs> um, Hassan Hammers Hat. Oh no, it's gone. Do you know when a name goes? Yeah, it's that. Well, him and Hassan haven't been going on really well at the moment, and it started around probably last winter when Hansi Fleck couldn't really get the players that he really wanted. And I think with the loss of Thiago from the team, with uh, Alaba not renewing his contract, Boateng seems to be the last straw. And the 1-1 against Union Berlin was um, kind of a teenage teenage child rebelling against their parent almost (laughs) with his team selection. (laughs) So he kind of, and everyone knows that since the German national team has come up, him and Sally Hamidzic, finally, I've said it right, um, has become really, really frayed because they, I think he's kind of forcing his way out because he's not really getting his way at Bayern at the moment. Um, they can. I think he'll still try and prove a point against PSG and the Marquinhos injury kind of evens it up a bit. If anyone has the quality to turn around that deficit, it's Bayern. Your pronunciation struggles have me worried about talking about Cologne later. I'm going to refer strictly to oh, the... No. Uh... <laughs> they can't have a run of last week. Can't. Yeah, I'm... I'm going to anglicise it from the off this time. I'm not going to try and uh, go German. I think that's beyond my capabilities, to be honest. But uh, but how good was Mbappe, Jasmine? He's unbelievable, isn't he? Oh, he's just a joy in every... I mean, I say it all the time, but he is the person who makes it work for PSG. He is the, Le- the Lewandowski of PSG. Um, and, you know, every time he plays especially in the big games, he just lights up the stage and that's what you want from, you know, what is he, 20? 20-year-old 20 World Cup winner. God, that I feel old while saying that. Um, yeah, you have to the stage that he's on and, you know, with him, you don't know what PSG is going to come out and but you know he will be the one trying to save them at that point. True. Excellent assist from Neymar as well, to be fair. Um, but and also in fairness to Mbappe he doesn't have the same kind of horrendous TikTok channel that Lewandowski has so that's kind of putting him in my favour to be honest um, but yeah elsewhere Porto lost 2-0 to Chelsea and uh, now John you predicted it would be 2-1 or 3-1 so you said it would be tight wouldn't be a, a straightforward victory 
uh, and you were right. Um, what did you make of this game from both teams' perspectives? I thought it, it, it was quite cagey at stages. Uh, I think Chelsea overall probably deserved a victory. And it's just uh, really my main takeaway from that game was how good Mason Mount was and how much he's kind of surprised me. For a while, I just thought he, maybe he was just a favorite of Frank Lampard's and perhaps it was kind of Frank Lampard kind of politicking and playing like his favorite player over one of the signings from the summer. But uh, I think he has been in the team on merit and uh, he's been he's been superb as a flate. And <laughs> another point is how much Chelsea love playing in Sevilla Stadium. That's uh, I think that's the seven goals they've scored in two games there over, over the course of the Champions League campaign, either in the group stage or in the knockout stages. So uh, they're happy enough to keep on playing there, I think. Um, yeah, Porto are very well drilled, obstinate, uh, good defensively. I just don't think they had the the kind of requisite firepower to to hurt a, what what has been a really solid Chelsea defense, barring of course that calamity at, at home to West Bromwich Albion. So I think Chelsea are, are really in the box seat here, and uh, you know they're on the they're on the in inverted commas easier side of the draw, you would say. So perhaps Thomas Tuchel could you know, really bring Chelsea from possibly finishing in mid-table obscurity to a Champions League final, you wouldn't know. So, uh, yeah, I think Chelsea were deserved. Um, the the second leg is probably going to be similarly tight, but I don't see anything other than uh, than the Londoners advancing in that one. Absolutely. With apologies, we'll go to Alasdair. Unfortunately, there was no Italian team in the Champions League, but there was in the Europa League. Uh, Roma beat Ajax 2-1 away from home in the quarterfinal, first leg, and then followed up with a 1-0 defeat at Bologna at the weekend in Serie A. Uh, what's the thought, uh, Alasdair, from Rome um, about this Roma team and their prospects of maybe doing something in Europe this season? Yeah, well, first of all, it's thoroughly depressing hearing all this Champions League chat and not being able to <laughs> contribute at all. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's where we are this year. Um, it's also pretty surprising, to be honest, that the, the one team left in Europe of all the Italians is Roma. Um, and I re- the reason I say that is that the one thing they've been most criticised for this season is their inability to turn up in big games. Uh, because in if you look at the Serie A table right now, you'll see there's a kind of top seven who are, who are quite far ahead of the rest of the league. And in all Roma's games against the other teams in that top seven, they've not managed to get a single win all season. But in the Europa League, they've advanced pretty easily to be honest the only team that's taken any points off them so far has been CSK Sofia twice which is absolutely bizarre but um, other than that they've made a pretty easy work of of the competition so far the Ajax game was was a bit <laughs> a, a bit crazy really it was one of these typical Roma matches where it swung around in every direction and um, you know they, they kind of came away wondering how they'd managed to win the game because they were 1-0 down uh, deservedly then conceded a penalty that had to be saved before kind of getting their, their way back into the match but they ended up with I think less than half of the you know shots on goal shots on target that Ajax had so it should be a really interesting second leg um, I think that if they get through they're likely to face Manchester United which is obviously a uh, an altogether different test as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think they're they're in a very good position, obviously, to progress from this tie as it stands, having got the away win. But uh, whether they can go on and win it is, is another question. Really. I guess conspicuous in their absence um, was Juventus, who are kind of very much uh, Champions League royalty. You could say they definitely see themselves as the elite of the elite. Um, actually, just before we go into Juventus, is the top seven at the moment that's in situ, Alasdair, is that the seven sisters or is that is there someone missing? 
Well, traditionally, the Seven Sisters didn't involve Atalanta. They've become a kind of uh, modern Seventh Sister, I guess. Uh, in the olden days, um, Fiorentina and, and Parma were kind of part of that group as well. Um, but nowadays, yes, yeah, it's, it's started to be new, to be used as a phrase again because that top seven is pretty, like I say, pretty set above the rest of the league. It's like this top six became the top six only after Everton stopped finishing the top six. Before then, it was always the top four. But uh, that's another bone for contention for another day anyway, never mind. But uh, but yeah, I guess Alizar Juve beat uh, Napoli 2-1. Really big game. Cristiano came up with the goods uh, yet again. Uh, and then followed up with a 3-1 defeat of Genoa. Uh, what's the vibe in Turin at the moment? Um, how secure do you think Andrea Pirlo is? And is there kind of confidence that they can rally and kind of put together a late run to secure Champions League football because not so long ago that was almost a worry wasn't it that they wouldn't make the Champions League yeah absolutely and and the game against Napoli was was massive that was a that was a huge moment in their season a huge moment for Pirlo because before then they'd only taken one point from games against Benevento and Torino who, who they should both be beating um it's already look this is a team that's won the league for nine years in a row it became so kind of clear every year, year that Juve were going to uh, win the title that it, you know, they almost didn't get credit for it anymore. Um, and now they're suddenly getting the realization that actually it's not that easy to do after all. And what was happening before, I guess, was the anomaly. I think it's 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 a really difficult situation that they're in when you talk about the vibe at the moment. Although they've managed to get these back to back wins. Um, there's the story that's been huge today in Italy is about Cristiano Ronaldo kicking up a hissy fit after their win against Genoa despite getting back-to-back wins he didn't score a goal in that game at the end of the match he'd been very frustrated all the way through and he ripped off his shirt and he threw it on the ground there's kind of differing reports about whether or not he was giving it to the ball boy you would wonder if he was giving it to the ball boy that he might actually hand it to him instead of throwing it on the ground um, but then Gazetta report, reporting today, they went back and punched the wall in the dressing room and left. So he's not been kind of very happy with how things are going, I guess, wanting to raise standards around the place. And it's not that much of a surprise because he's a guy who's used to winning. Juventus is a club that's used to winning. And at the moment, they're, they're 12 points behind Inter. And like you say, very much involved in a top four battle because there's, um, a, very, uh, there's a, a group of six teams, really, um, within, I think, eight points of one another and uh, chasing those those top four spots. So there's, although they're in a better position now than they were a couple of weeks ago, it's still not guaranteed at all. Absolutely. And then from a Napoli perspective, they followed up that, that defeat with a 2-0 win away at Sampdoria. Um, how stable is General Gattuso's uh, position at, at this the Stadio Diego Armando Maradona? Um, and how is his relationship uh, with Dario Laurentiis? Because, I mean, I know it's been a kind of a rocky season for him this year, hasn't it? Yeah, fairly uh, fiery. I mean, it always is uh, with De Laurentiis generally and, and often is in Napoli generally. They actually they went into a media blackout quite a while ago now, and, and since they did that, they've managed to turn their form around it, and you do wonder how much of it is it's helped by the fact that they've just stopped talking to the media and they're focusing on themselves a bit more. Their run of form recently has been absolutely excellent. Apart from the UV game, they've, they've won, um, I think it's five of their last six games, including beating Milan, beating uh, Roma. So yeah, they've been doing really well. And 
they're a bit of an odd team because you're not really surprised by anything with Napoli. They, they have enough talent in that team that if they win a big match and get a big result, you're not surprised because you feel like they have the players that they could and should be doing that. Um, but they've been kind of inconsistent uh, in the earlier parts of the season particularly. And so, you know, if they throw away a, a bad result, you're not that surprised by it either. And, but then the thing is, that goes for almost all these teams chasing top four places in Italy. All of them have their flaws. All of them have big strengths, big flaws, and a lot of inconsistency. And as a result, I, I mean, that's really what makes it such a fascinating uh, race this season. Absolutely. Very interesting race, uh, indeed. My roommate in Lisbon was from Naples, and every weekend I just hear Kekatsu. Castle. That's all I'd hear. Um, but <laughs> and amongst other things, but uh, I know enough Italian that I probably shouldn't say the other things on the on on, on live uh, on live podcast. But, uh, but anyway, um, Arsenal Jasmine drew one all with Slavia Prague in the Europa League. Uh, not a great result given they were leading for most of the game. Uh, then followed it up with a. 3-0 victory over the pretty much relegated Sheffield United. I saw you silence a couple of the Twitter fanboys claiming that uh, the Twitter coaches who have been criticising Lacazette were wrong because Lacazette scored against Sheffield and you were kind of saying, well, no, it was Sheffield. So how do you feel about both of these games? And I guess it kind of sums up Arsenal, doesn't it? I mean, like, they're just consistently inconsistent. Yeah, I think, I think it's a lot to do with, I guess, the different kind of types of teams. Um, you, you're you not going to really compare, <laughs> compare Slavia Prague to uh, Sheffield United, but also uh, the Sheffield United team was a little bit more experimental just because of the problems Arsenal have at left-back. Um, the, the Slavia Prague match was just so turgid. It's so, um, just so weak. It was... Arsenal only had two shots on goal in the whole game, which is, I mean, they were outdone in that aspect, both Slavia Prague. Um, you know, it, it didn't even start to click until he changed the basically front five all at the same time. Um, I don't think Shaka and Thomas' uh, party work quite well in terms of build-up play together either, and especially not to a more difficult European structured team. Um, I think that was pretty obvious. I think a lot of the the players were tired. Um, and, you know, I think going 1-0 up so late caused a little bit of, um, a little bit of uh, incomplacency. And Danny Ceballos coming on just seemed to mess up the rhythm after the goal. Um, so, yeah, really, really not great stuff. Hopefully, I still think Arsenal can do it. Um, they do have the players to score at least one goal away to Slavia Prague. Um, and everyone still needs to see the Arsenal um, versus Emery semi-final, don't they? So, <laughs> so otherwise, it's not the Europa League. I say this every, every week, so... Hopefully, yeah, they can turn that around. Yeah, you know, Emery, the uh, Europa League zombie who just won't die, as uh, Jasmine put it last week. <laughs> um, and he proved that he they won again uh, midweek, beating Dynamo Zagreb 1-0 uh, away from home in Croatia. 
they also lost to Asasuna at the weekend. Um, looked quite fatigued, I thought, the last 2-1. Uh, Granada, meanwhile, lost 2-0 to Manchester United in Andalusia and Las Carmenas, um, but managed to put together a Remontada comeback at the weekend to beat Real Valladolid, who are fighting relegation, uh, 2-1 after going a goal down. Uh, Rory, from your perspective, what, what are the hopes of these two teams uh, coming into the Europa League? I mean, as Jasmine has alluded to, Unai Emery is quite formidable in the Europa League. Uh, won three times with Sevilla. Um, hasn't won with anybody else yet, but you know, Villarreal could be well-placed to do it because they're quite a good team on their day, lacking consistency domestically, but uh, capable of mixing with anybody, you could say, especially in that fabled competition of uh, Unai's. But, you know, how... Realistic, do you think it is for them to be hoping to win the league, the Europa League this season? And also, how much of a chance do you think Granada have of going and doing something at United? Because I mean, they're they're safe mathematically in La Liga. They're in good form. Uh, they're solid. You know, we know they're fighters. We know they can come back. Uh, so, what what do you make of their chances? Well, for, firstly, I'll talk about Unai Emery and Arsenal which is the Europa League content that we all need in our lives, frankly. But Villarreal, they're, they're a very frustrating team because they're sort of hanging on to the coattails of Gerard Moreno, who is has been amazing, fantastic, one of the best players in La Liga this season. But they've, they've got very little else. And if you want to look at the difference between the Dinamo Zagreb, Zagreb game on Thursday and Osasuna, the big difference is that Gerard Moreno played 45 minutes against Osasuna and he played the 90 against Zagreb. And so I think what, what Villarreal need to... Well, I think they'll get past Dinamo. I think they have enough in the tank, and certainly if Dinamo have to come on to them, that suits Villarreal just fine. But I think what they need to find is the form of Paco Alcacer, who's come back from injury. He's been in and out of the team all year, and when he's firing and scoring as he was at the start of the season him and Moreno made a fantastic partnership if they can get Paco Alcacer back to his sort of fighting fit form then I think you might see a good chance otherwise if I'm if I'm Mikel Arteta if I'm uh, any of our challengers in the final I just look at it and say take Gerard Moreno at the game and you win the game because although they do have other good players Manu Trigueros they have plenty of other very good players they just rely on him so much. And so I think they do have a chance. Unai Emery, as you say, his Europa League record is unparalleled, but they've not shown enough in defence to sort of scrape by on 1-0 wins for me. That I, th- I think they do need a little bit more up front, and that comes from Alcacer. On the other hand, Granada, I don't... I don't like their chances against Manchester United, put it that way. I don't think they were outplayed at Los Carmenes. I think they gave a pretty good account of themselves and were beaten on... I think the Rashford goal was fantastic. I think that was a brilliant goal, but it was a moment amongst that game. And same with the penalty. I think plenty of people will have thought that was pretty debatable. I think they need to rely on Manchester United having an off day. I think their biggest problem comes from the fact that chasing the game is probably the thing that Granada like to do least and the thing that Manchester United will enjoy most. So if I if I were to game plan this from a Diego Martinez point of view, I would set out fairly 
neutral to begin with at the very least and try to nick a goal. And if you nick a goal and Manchester United are in a funk and they're in one of those moods where they don't seem to create anything at all, then you have a chance. And if they come out all guns blazing, they will struggle quite significantly. And to go back to sort of Reno Gattuso against Granada, he said that if we had behaved like Granada did today, then we would be all over the front papers across Italy. And when when they were beaten by Granada in the Europa League, and I think that shows you the kind of savvy that Granada do have and the ability to sort of extract results from um, from absolutely nowhere. And so they've got a small chance, but they do have far fewer resources than Manchester United, and they're playing a game that realistically they don't want to be playing. Yeah, what, what I love about this Granada team is that um, you know, unlike say maybe Real Sociedad, who are very likable in kind of the more obvious ways in terms of, you know, most of their players are local. Uh, they play attractive football. They've some very very talented young players who really can play the ball well. Granada are much more kind of streetwise and savvy. They don't have a distinct style. They can just more of a distinct spirit, you could say. Um, very much all about kind of the eternal lucha as their slogan. Uh, very much about the fight and very much about. Uh, being competitive, which I think is is great, and I think a bit of shit out of is is fine by me as well. Personally, I think if Gattuso is complaining about uh, ta- antics, then I think you're doing something right, basically, when you're winning games like that uh, way in Europe. Um, but staying on Manchester United, uh, John, I know that you love speaking about Jose Mourinho. So uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's team beat Mourinho's team three one. Uh, at the weekend, um, not like a very good result for Spurs or Mourinho. Uh, good result for Ole, but I guess it's kind of the typical result that Ole has been getting this season, and that's not where United are falling. So, just to focus primarily on Spurs from your perspective, um, how would you find this game? And and yeah, go on, you can have a go at berating Jose as you love doing. I feel like this like podcast is Groundhog Day for me. I'm either complaining about one of two things, either Jose Mourinho's conservatism or VAR. And we have both of those in this game. So uh, Spurs took the lead, which they have done on 22 separate occasions in the Premier League this season. And if they had taken the points, in, they'd been in the position to take to be second in the table on 66 points. But instead, they've dropped 17 points from those positions and now they're in seventh. And like, I don't want to disparage Musa Sissoko, but he was like a harbinger for doom. When I saw him coming on for Giovanni Lasalso, I I thought to myself, there is no way the Spurs are going to win this game. They're going to do what they usually do is they're going to drop deep and seed possession. And in fact, they only had twenty seven percent of the ball after after they had scored their goal against Man United. Then it's not invariably a team who dominate the ball. So that kind of goes to show how much Spurs treated it like a hot potato and were quite content to sit back and try and not lose rather than to chase the win. And uh, yeah, it, it came back to bite them as it invariably has done. Um, I thought Manchester United were superb in many parts of the game, especially Paul Pogba. He's a player that can be inconsistent, but when he's on form, he's amongst the best midfielders in the world. And he really ran this game, but uh, Spurs were just, they, they, they were totally abject. And it'll be interesting to see if, if either Mourinho or Harry Kane, who's been, increasingly linked with a move away from the club in the summer are going to be there next year. My money would probably be on Mourinho not being there and Kane might stay, but only by dint of nobody being able to afford to make Dan Levy t- or Daniel Levy tempted to sell him. But uh, yeah, it, it, it was a standard Spurs performance for the season. And uh, 
you know, given the lack of adversity they've had in terms of injuries compared to other teams chasing for the top four, I thought they could have really, really snuck in there. And it would have been a huge fill-up for them because they're paying off a new stadium. I mean, they, they're heavily in debt because of that. So to not make Champions League this season when a lot of the opposition around them have been really weak, I think is a damning indictment of, of Mourinho, especially because he was backed quite heavily last summer, whereas Mauricio Pochettino was probably the best coach in our modern history, wasn't given a cent after getting to the Champions League final. So I think a lot of this lies at the door of Dan Levy and then, by extension, Jose Mourinho. Absolutely. David Ornstein's column this morning suggesting that Daniel Levy will by no means uh, sell Harry Kane to another English team, which narrows down the options given that the two Spanish clubs who would be in the market for a player of his kind of calibre are looking at other targets, it seems. Uh, PSG have been mentioned coincidentally in conversation with him. Um, should Kylian Mbappe not renew his current deal? in Paris uh, so interesting to see how that one goes this summer because he certainly doesn't seem that content to be at a team that's kind of constantly also runs it seems um, but from a United perspective Jasmine why do you make this game I mean you sent into our group chat the, the, this picture of uh, Mike Mike Phelan yeah Mike Phelan you sent in the picture of Mike Phelan to our group chat of him looking just kind of I don't know how, how would you describe his, uh, his facial expression Jasmine and how do you feel that is almost indicative of, of was it the game or is it Manchester United season or what? Oh, I, I, I think I've probably um, been critical of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer before. And I think that, <laughs> that um, my feelings face kind of was questioning his existence in that very moment of time. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it was a good game. It was good tactics from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer where I thought for the first kind of think 20 minutes I was like oh this is another big six nil nil which we've seen quite um happen quite a, a few times under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer I still stick by what I said um they're not he's probably not the right man to take them forward to actually win anything um maybe the Europa League um that would be probably massive for him and trying to keep him at uh, Man United but in terms of winning the league, I know that they're the second best team. But I, it's just there's something about their consistency, their play, that just doesn't make them world beaters. And I think that was shown up in this year's Champions League. He's still very much that manager. Um, and But yeah, it just, just shows how bad and how outdated Jose Mourinho is for another lead to slip for them. They, they just, I just don't understand the rationale in not really funding Maurizio Pochettino, as quite rightly said, the best manager in their modern history, and then spending, they're in debt of the new stadium, spending so much money on Jose Mourinho's contract, they probably aren't even in a position to sack him, um, and all those players uh, and you've kind of got the Tottenham team that we've got right now which crazily Arsenal are even four points behind this Tottenham team Absolutely um, United of course uh, got to the final of the Europa League last se- the semi-final of the Europa League last season sorry uh, where they fell to Sevilla um, who went on to win the competition at the expense of Inter Milan and uh, now Sevilla played this evening against Celta Vigo 
uh, at Balairos. Um, they have to fourth place nailed down, but they're going to try and finish the season strong so it's to build momentum for the coming campaign. Uh, but Inter certainly have things to play for this season. Alistair, they're flying. They uh, beat Sassuolo 2-1 uh, earlier in the week and then followed it up with a 1-0 defeat of Cagliari. Um, just how good of this Inter team do you think? Uh, is the title a sure thing as as far as sure things go? Um, and what do you think is kind of the characteristics that uh, Conte has brought to this Inter Milan team that's turn them from being, you know, kind of perennial also runs in many ways uh, in the last decade or so to title contenders. Because that the title is the competition they want the most, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Inter has, has been a long wait, you know, for a club of that size to have uh, not won the title since Mourinho was there in 2010, which is, you know, the treble year when they won the Champions League as well. It's, it's a long, long time. And uh, and let's not forget that it was only a few years ago that they actually got back in the Champions League at all. They had a big uh, dry spell where neither Milan club was even qualifying for the Champions League. So um, the main thing, I mean, the thing I always come back to with Inter really is that they almost kind of, uh, the Inter fans have always uh, described the team as Pazza Inter, which means like crazy Inter. And that's, that's their nickname. And the reason they get that name is because it's been a characteristic of this team in the past is they're always involved in these crazy games. They're always, you know, throwing away leads or being in goal fest or roller coaster matches, this kind of thing. And as soon as Conte came in, one of the things he talked about, I think in his very first interview, was the fact that he wanted to get rid of, he wanted to basically take the crazy out of Inter to make them into a more competitive team. And, you know, he, he has achieved that. If you see what they've done now, um, they've gone 11 wins in a row. Uh, so he's actually chasing a league record with that run. Um, and he's he doesn't really care. He said he, he doesn't care about aesthetics, he said last weekend because their objective is more important. I don't think Inter are an unattractive team to watch by any means. In fact, I think the turning point came earlier this year when he actually put more of his uh, attractive players into the team, stopped using the likes of Ashley Young and Roberto Gagliardini every week, who are quite functional um, players, and replaced them with Christian Eriksen. He finally found a role for after it seemed like he was destined to leave. And even Perisic, who he's finally two years later, being able to turn into an effective wing-back. And if you look at the players they've got in that team now, spearheaded by a, a strike partnership in Lukaku and Martinez, which is uh, the second only to Lewandowski and Miller in Europe this season for goals, it, it makes them pretty formidable because that's combined with a, a back three that give very little away. So he's just turned them into a unit. It's it's taken a fair bit of time, a fair bit of trial and error. Um, people always point back to the fact that the Champions League groups, group stage exit, which was uh, a, a disaster at the time and that had a lot of people even calling for Conte's head at the time. Um, but that has actually helped them because when he has a week to prepare, there are very few coaches who are better than Conte at coming up with a strategy to beat a certain opposition with a week's notice and a full-strength team. Um, so he's, he's just turned them into this um, complete machine, really, uh, a very well-oiled machine. And I guess it's it's the result of, of getting the combination of time with the players, um, eventually getting more of the kind of players he wants and his attitude rubbing off. 
And that's something the players have talked about time and again, as well as the fact that they are now doing kind of what he's been asking them to do all along. And his, his kind of meltdowns have, have stopped being quite so frequent. And we've seen more of the kind of loving Conte um, on the weekend when they beat Cagliari. Uh, he went and joined in the celebrations and the, at the byline when they scored. And he was kissing Akraf Hakimi in the head and talking about how he would jump into the fire for his, his players and this kind of thing. So it's been kind of more positive vibes for him recently as well. Absolutely. Um, and I guess staying in Milan, uh, AC Milan beat Parma 3-1 uh, in Parma uh, this weekend. Um, what do you make of their season so far? Um, and do you think that they have a reasonable chance of kind of improving on it next season and uh, really challenging their city rivals for the title, uh, do you think? Um well, what have I made of their season? I think I think it's been excellent. It's exceeded expectations um, by miles. Nobody expected them to be involved in a in a title race this season, let alone leading the table up until I think it was week twenty two that the Inter got past them. But their their calendar year in twenty twenty was incredible. Um, the the run they went on in that year, and they're almost a bit unlucky that you know a season didn't fall over the course of those twelve months, rather than uh, two different ones. So. Um, I, I think Zlatan Ibrahimovic. People always talk about the impact his his arrival last January has made on on the, the players. Because the reason I think that the future is pretty bright for that team is quite a simple one, which is that they've got one of the youngest squads in in Europe's top five leagues. And if you look at the core of that team, there is only really room for improvement um, given the age profile of of the players that they've got. Um, uh, they're still, you know, they've they've been they've hit a tricky spot this season since the turn of the year. My big um, concern with Stefano Pioli has always been that he doesn't necessarily come out that well when his back's to the wall when he's trying to find a plan B and and turn form around. And they have been struggling a bit recently. But if they can hang on, get into the Champions League, and and have this young squad going forwards, I think they're they're in a very good position to become. Uh, become competitive again they've not been in the Champions League since 2014 which is far too long for a club of that stature and if they manage to get back in that competition I think it will help them attract players make more money and do all the important off-field stuff as well as what they've been doing on the pitch Absolutely it's certainly crazy that a club of that stature hasn't been in Europe's premier competition for so long um, but going from the top of Italy to the bottom of Germany Jasmine uh, could have interesting results there uh, Schalke, the much maligned Schalke, beat Augsburg 1-0 and uh, Cologne lost 3-2 to Mainz. Um, they have a new coach now, don't they, Cologne? Uh, what did you make of these results and do you think that uh, Cologne's decision to change coach could uh, mean that they have a chance coming into the season in terms of the fight for survival? I mean, Funkel, the caretaker manager that they've brought in, fun time Funkel, <laughs> it's his second time at Cone and he's experienced. They, they they need that short-term kind of, I wouldn't say Sam Allardyce. Uh, I wouldn't probably wouldn't compare anyone to Sam Allardyce, but for short-term trying to get them out of the uh, relegation battle, three because they're only three points away, he's definitely more experienced. And, you know, Cone's old manager, Gisdall, were, had been hanging on by a thread for quite some time. I don't think they hadn't won since the 2nd of, uh, the 6th of February 
against their biggest rivals, area rivals, Minch and Gladbach. Um, so, yeah, it had been coming for some time. And, yes, uh, it also we also saw a very rare Schalke win. Um, they have improved in recent weeks. They were quite unlucky to lose 2-1 to Bayer Leverkusen last week. Um, Augsburg has one of the worst XG and underlying stats this season and unexpected points actually puts them second bottom. But they're 11th, quite away from the relegation battle. Um, so, you know, as Schalke proved these kind of Im- improvements against Augsburg and now they have two wins in in 28 games this season. Um, they newest manager, their fifth manager this season, uh, Grimotsis actually has the best points per game um, of this of the five managers and um, it's not enough to get them anywhere close to out of relegation but um, they have beaten Tasmania, Bel- oh no they're on Tasmania Berlin's um, record now so they won't go down as the worst team, they will meet on most wins um they are joint for the worst ever record now so they just need one more win to make sure Tasmania Berlin keeps that record interesting um and then Eintracht Frankfurt Eintracht Frankfurt beat Wolfsburg 4-3 looked like quite a thriller that one um and they're looking quite good for the fourth spot now don't you think um I mean they're seven points clear of Dortmund uh with 28 games played having won three in the bounce. Um, like, do you think that that's it for the Champions League places? Or do you think Dortmund can mount a kind of a late uh, rally and sneak in there? Well, today's news of Eintracht um, Frankfurt's manager, Adi Hutter, will be joining Minchin Gladbach next season. That news coming out, um, I wonder if we'll see an Eintracht Frankfurt fall of form like we did in when Gladbach's Barcarosa was announced that he was going to Dortmund. Um, we have one of these Bundesliga merry-go-rounds at least once a year, so this is that time. Um, so I would say if the news didn't come out today that Adi Hütter was going from Frankfurt um, and by the end of the season, I would probably say it was done. But because of that, it will be interesting to see how they perform against Mönchengladbach um, their next game, which I did not realise was their next fixture. Um, so, yeah, I guess um, I, Adi Hut is a wonderful manager and he's structured. He knows how to develop um, talent. We've seen this. Um, he had a little bit of a wobble last season, but mainly his records in improving teams and development has been superb and even news of him going to Gladbach I don't think is going to temper with too much like it did when Gladbach's manager was leaving when that news was announced because um, you know there's quite a bit of change going on and all the players are are aware and all the management are aware of these changes so I think they're better suited to stay where they are and there are a lot of players who will be still be there next season who will want to see um the champions league see and compete in the champions league um but for the game itself it was incredible i don't think i've ever seen 
a team score full goals from 0.73 xg before and they were all magnificent <laughs> well well um yeah it's quite remarkable isn't it the uh managerial merry-go-round in germany it's just so ruthless like i mean it seems to be so kind of self-contained in the league i mean Dortmund taking from Mushin Gladbach, Mushin Gladbach taking from Eintracht. It's kind of very ruthless, to be honest. But uh, but yeah, anyway, uh, so I guess speaking of Champions League, as we just were, um, West Ham United, uh, John, I know they're interested in their progress this season. They had a very good week beating Wolves 3-2 away from home and then following it up with a 3-2 defeat of fellow Champions League chasers, Leicester City. Um, Everton drew one over Palace. Uh, last Monday night, very Everton performance says set you up for disappointment after conceding the second half late to Michel Batuashi. And they played Brighton this evening, but uh, I would discount them from the top four race at this point of the season, to be honest with you. But going back to West Ham and former Everton coach David Moyes, uh, how impressed are you with the job he's done, uh, John? Oh, he's done fantastically. I think pound for pound, he's getting the most out of the squad in the league than any other coach. He's like he's far exceeding where you would expected them to be. I mean, remember last season they barely stayed up, and all of a sudden this term they've 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 come on and they've 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 improved exponentially. And looking at them, I remarked to you yesterday that they remind me of some of Moyes' best Everton teams, and that it's like a combination of steel and silk, and everybody knows their own role and their function within that unit, and they're so well drilled and. You know they they richly richly deserved uh, deserved their victory. Leicester only really started playing when they were staring down the barrel of a of a three 0 defeat. But I was so impressed with West Ham and particularly Jesse Lingard, who's just he's been a revelation. I mean, admittedly, I'd written him off when he was at Manchester United after I think he might have had maybe six good months under Jose Mourinho at one stage, but after that he was you know he was average at best. But uh, he's been superb and he's he's really thriving in that system where it's like. Everybody else is given like strict duties off the ball and defensively, but Lingard is kind of indulged and given a certain amount of freedom. And, you know, since he signed for the club, he's had the most goals in the league. He's had the most shots on target. He's had, an, he's had a lot of assists. And, you know, it's really nice to watch because it's almost like playground football, just the, just the, the, the abandon he's playing with and the absolute joy. And I mean, I think he rubs a lot of people up the wrong way, but like, if he played for your club, you'd absolutely love him because he has this really infectious joy about the way he plays football and the celebrations and everything about him. So he, he's been superb. Um, I don't think they'll have it in them to stay the course just because I think injuries will catch up with them. Mikel Antonio and Declan Rice will miss most of it, if not the remainder of the campaign. Um, Mark Noble went off injured yesterday. Artu Masawaku look like he might have picked up a knock as well. But, I mean, even if West Ham were to finish fifth or sixth, it would be an absolutely brilliant achievement. So, fair play to them. But I think this might be the start of Leicester skid, quite like last season. I mean, they, they were poor for the majority of this game. And then also hearing about the house party that some of their players had in the midst of COVID really makes me think there's not a fantastic culture there. And, you know... It makes me think that once again, having a few defeats like that makes start a snowball of losses, and they'll 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 fall out of the reckoning once again. I mean, if it wasn't for Clechi and Nacho, you, who knows where they'd be at the table at this stage? Because Jamie Vardy is probably going through his most barren goal scoring run since since he's come to the Premier League. So I think it was a brilliant day for for West Ham, but for Leicester, I think the signs don't aren't necessarily too good for the rest of their campaign. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's been everyone's been kind of predicting it all season, haven't they? That you know, eventually they're going to have this late season decline. It hasn't happened yet, but as you mentioned, maybe it could be um, in line to do so. Uh, just flying quickly back to uh, Spain, um, Rory. Just two interesting games this weekend. Uh, kind of very high pressure games, you could say, but both teams dealing with pressure in different ways. So, Cuesca Elche and Betty against Atletico Madrid. I mean, obviously. Huesca are fighting for their lives at the moment, really kind of under pressure to escape relegation and look to be doing so, as you kind of coined on a little own podcast this morning. It's like almost the great escape, the great Huescape in many ways. Um, and then similarly, Atletico are at the other end of the table, fighting for the title, uh, under serious pressure from the big two um, and looking quite worse to wear for it. So what do you make of these two games? I mean, for me, it's look, it looked like Huesca are playing with kind of a reckless abandon almost, you know, just kind of flying in the face of defeat and really kind of just, you know, going for it with everything they have. Whereas the Teleco are very, very much playing not to lose at the moment, right? Yeah, I'd agree with that assessment. I think Pacheta, who's the Huesca coach, he's perhaps butchers for words, but he's got a very infectious personality and listening to him speak in the press conference before this game against Elche, it's the way he was speaking about it. He was saying, we are obligated to compete. We can't go out with our heads down. And he was talking about sort of being proud of their work and being able to sort of help out their teammates if, they, if they're if they in trouble. It really very much sort of hearts and passion and all that kind of uh, shenanigans and discourse, which seems to have got a bit more out of them. They, they've got plenty, they seem more ruthless, certainly both at the back and going forward, as, as I mentioned on the podcast, they, they're far more lethal going forward. There's runs from deep, and I think they, they have a bit of confidence that they've been lacking. Even at the start of the season, they're sort of the middle third of their game was really, really good, and they were playing some, I think they impressed a lot of people with their football but they just lacked something both in both boxes. They lacked a killer instinct or in their own box, an ability to sort of shut teams down and grit their teeth kind of thing. Whereas Pacheta's given them that. I think he's given them a bit more of a winning mentality and it has to be pretty sweet for him getting one over Elche who sacked him after uh, winning them promotion last season. And no matter how high and mighty he is, there's got to be a small part of him that really enjoys putting Elche into the relegation zone and jumping out with Huesca himself. And yeah, on the other hand, Simeone seemed pretty content in his post-match presser against Betis. He wasn't obviously over the moon, but he signaled that he was pleased with the first half and that they played a good game and had opportunities to win. It certainly wasn't the the conversation of a man who was really disappointed. And to a degree, I think there it's worth saying that they were missing Llorente, they were missing Suarez, Dembélé wasn't playing. They were struggling a lot for players. And Angel Correa, come back to us. I, I love Angel Correa. I think he's quite an underrated player and very good at sneaking through a defence. But that's now the third game Sunday night against Betis where he's had a huge chance, the others being against Levante, he missed an open goal. They went on to draw that 1-1. And then against Sevilla last weekend, or the previous weekend, he also missed a big chance to equalise. And I think the narrative looks very different if he scores two or three of those goals. And he's not an out-and-out goal scorer, and I'd love to criticise players too much. And But those 
big chances have really come back to bite Atleti. And yeah, that could really be the difference is the fact that Simeone, he's content to take a good point, whereas I think Real Madrid and Barcelona will see every single point dropped as a big missed opportunity. And Atleti don't have any more margin for error, really. Absolutely fascinating title race. We have the cards in Spain, to be fair. Um, just finally, before we finish up, Alistair, a word in Hellas Verona. They lost 1 0 to Lazio at the weekend, but they're having a very good season. Um, we've spoken about uh, Tom, Tim Park's book, A Season with Verona. For me, it's one of the best books you can find on football uh, anywhere. Myself and my dad read it. My, actually, my old fella texts me literally every weekend uh, with Verona's result. He's, he's always followed them ever since reading the book because he just feels like he can identify with the kind of struggle that they've gone through as an Evertonian, you know, both winning their last league title. Well, Everton won a league title in 1985 um, and they won it again in 1987 and Verona's last title came in 1985. But just uh, what do you make, Alasdair, of, you know, their season and the kind of new iteration of this Hellas Verona team? They've changed their crest. Uh, have they changed their style as well? And, and how are they doing what they're doing in terms of coming up from Serie B and beginning to kind of really establish themselves amongst the uh, Italian elite? Yeah, I'd, I'd never thought of the Verona-Everton comparison before. That's, uh, <laughs> I quite like that. Um, yeah, it's, they're, they're, they've been a great success. I mean, you know, having just heard about uh, David Moyes, you know, pound for pounds, getting the best out of his team in the Premier League this season, I think you'd say the same for Ivan Juric at Verona, not just this season, but last season. Um, nobody expected two years ago when they came up that they'd end up being a kind of established top half team. Um, in fact, most people tip them to go straight back down again. I mean, uh, when they came up, they scraped into the playoffs, sacked their coach, Fabio Grosso, before the playoffs, had someone else come in to take them through the playoffs that they managed to get through somehow, and then sacked him and replaced him with Juric when they actually arrived in Serie A. So they didn't exactly come in, uh, which is very Italian, let's be honest, but they, they came up to the league with quite low expectations. And Juric is a guy who's had previous experiences in Serie A, which haven't necessarily been brilliant but that's kind of warped by the fact it was at Genoa which is the most basket case club of all for for coaches um, and the thing is he, he did, a br- did brilliantly last season playing a kind of 3-4-2-1 that almost kind of mirrored Atalanta and you know not as gung-ho as Atalanta but drew comparisons and Juric um, became known as a kind of mini Gasparini and you know, then what happened over the summer was they lost the spine of that team. You know, they lost Pessina, they lost uh, Amrabat to Fiorentina, they lost Kambula to Roma, uh, Rahmani to, to Napoli. Um, so many of the players that got them there ended up leaving the club in the summer that yet again, most people were tipping them to go back down again. And what he somehow managed to do again on a shoestring budget with a squad full of players who are on loan is discover even more hidden gems and now they're 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 on a poor run of form at the moment but they're very much you know they're in eighth place um Sassuolo are playing later tonight so they could move down tonight but it's they're they're basically now their objective for the season is who's going to finish eighth them or Sassuolo which is an incredible position for that club to be in considering uh where they came from a couple of years ago and you know he's con- continued to unearth gems this season 
Lovati, a very young defender, has done very well. Um, Matias Zaccagni has been getting Italy call-ups as one player of the month. They, they've got uh, Adrian Tamezi as well on loan from Atalanta. They've got a lot of talent in that team, and if you know if you're bored on a Sunday and you're not sure who to watch, they're they're generally a good bet because he does he does some very good, um, clever clever moves. Likes to keep people on their toes as well. I was covering Lazio's game against them earlier this season, and Tameze, who's a kind of central midfielder who's sometimes been played in defence, was was lined up as uh, a striker, and I wasn't sure I was actually looking correctly at the pitch as I was seeing it, but he decided to move him up as a striker because he wants a more physical presence there. They ended up winning the game 2-1 and Tamezi scored. So, um, yeah, they're, they're a very clever, cleverly coached team and it's amazing that they managed to rebuild after the summer to, to have yet again another brilliant season. Absolutely. It certainly sounds like an interesting story. Maybe uh, they could do a sequel to that great book. Um, but just to finish up, guys, I want to ask you each for your moment of the week. Um, for me, my moment of the week was definitely, uh, once again, Elish Mariba. I just think he's such an f- interesting character. Uh, the 18-year-old came on in the 72nd minute of a classical, you know, the biggest game of his career by a country mile, and really got amongst it. He hit the crossbar in the last minute, literally the last gasp of the game, um, which would have been a, a spectacular equaliser. And really put himself about, got himself right up in the face of Casemiro, Luka Modric, kind of really seasoned pros, really giving it to him, you know. So I just found it to be uh, resplendent of kind of a really strong character. And I'm really interested to see his progress. And also, coincidentally, there's an article coming out tomorrow morning in La Liga Rodon, where I break down the journeys of Anzu Fati and Yish Mariba, uh, two young La Masia products who came from West Africa as first-generation immigrants. So, yeah, really interesting story there in Catalonia. But, um, Jasmine, what was your moment of the week? Um, I think I have to, I've got two in mind. Um, I'm going to go with Mines' winner. It's a last, last gasp winner, and they haven't looked great all season, but um, they got Bruce Fenson in, um, who was coaching in Austria. And since they've got him in... I believe that they're unbeaten, um, and which had seen them move from really down in the relegation zone um, near to Schalke and have propelled them into basically, they're safe, two points safe now um, in 14th position. And just seeing that last gasp goal, it was a great match between two sides that could absolutely not defend for very long. And I think... Just all that hard work and all that emotion came out. They didn't have much of the ball and had six shots on target at the end. And when that last goal went in, you could just see the relief at four, seven minutes of of injury time. Sorry, and yeah, they, he's doing an amazing job there. Sounds sounds fascinating, yeah, for sure. Um, John, for you, what was your moment of the week? I briefly have three of them and I'd file them under the shithouse umbrella. So the first one was the... I that's, favorite, that's my favourite umbrella. Yeah, it's it's so secure. Um, the first one was the Ajax ball boy firing the ball at the Roma player because why not? The second one was also from the Europa League where that, where that streaker actually hid in Granada Stadium for 14 hours apparently. So fair play to him. I wish I, wish I believed in, uh, in, in something quite that much. And... Uh, the third is just Alan St. Maximan's social media game. Uh, he was superb for Newcastle, scored a brace 
in in are he scored against Burnley in their victory that might just keep them in the Premier League, and afterwards he just handled a number a number of trolls on Twitter with some just really funny content. So fair play as well. Loads of hippies in Granada. To be fair, um, it's funny seeing him break onto the pitch like that, and fair play to him for waiting that long to do so. Uh, Alistair, what was your moment of the week? That's hard to beat, that isn't it? Um, I think it's probably in Serie A the the moment that. Uh, Parma's game against Milan, uh, 60 minutes in, Milan 2-0 up. Zlatan Ibrahimovic gets sent off seemingly for absolutely no reason. Um, we we knew at the time it was for dissent, didn't really have a clue what was going on. Zlatan looked very confused about the whole thing. And that left them with 10 men. Parma immediately pulled one back and you start to wonder if this is going to be the moment that Milan's season kind of gets derailed. But they managed to go on and win the game 3-1 with 10 men. But the interesting thing is really what's come since then, which is that uh, Pioli's press conference afterwards, he said that uh, Zlatan had kind of explained what he'd said to the ref and it was nothing. And it seems like the referee may have misunderstood what Zlatan said and got the, the words strano, which means strange, and bastardo, which doesn't really need much of a uh, translation for you. And so he thinks that uh, he's been insulted when he actually wasn't and Zlatan was actually saying to him, that uh, something seemed strange to him that the referee had said. So it was all a bit bizarre, and we're yet to find out what's uh, what's going to happen with that in terms of uh, a ban or if there's any video evidence to back up what Zlatan said. But it was uh, uh, it was just as well probably that Milan ended up getting the win as it would have caused no end of controversy otherwise. <laughs> Absolutely, I can imagine the Milan press wouldn't have taken too kindly to that. Uh, Rory, what was you? With an honourable mention to Casemiro, who got sent off because Casemiro never gets sent off. It's his second red card in his career. Um, I'm going to go with Claudio Bravo making that huge save from Angel Correa in the dying moments. It was right at the end of the game and it really sort of looked like that might tip the balance because now Atleti don't really have a cushion if they had managed to pick up all three points, then they would have been able to draw a match and still be ahead of Real Madrid. But without that cushion, that could be a huge moment. And Claudio Bravo, a former Barcelona player, perhaps keeping them in it in a way. Absolutely. I have Chilean roommates and um, they were very, very pleased with their compatriot's performance and claimed that he's the best goalkeeper to ever play football, it seems. Um, but yeah, just a quick one, guys, to finish up. <laughs> Uh, on socials, um, just before we end, my social media is Azul Feely, A-Z-U-L-F-E-E-H-E-L-Y on Twitter. Uh, Jasmine, how about you? Um, my Twitter is underscore Jasmine Barber, um, but you can find me and all my pieces that I may or may not write this week. Perfect. John? Mine is at NotoriousJOS on Twitter. I should have a couple of pieces on Anfield Index, Liverpool FC related in the coming days. Sounds brilliant. Alistair? Uh, it's at AKS McKenzie to find me on Twitter. I'll post all my work there usually. Perfect. And Rory, finally? You can find me at R-U-R-I Barlow, B-A-R-L-O-W, Rory Barlow, on Twitter for all things Spanish football and some articles too. Perfect. Sounds brilliant. So thanks guys for joining me. Really appreciate it. Really interesting chat about all the goings on across England, Spain, Italy and Germany. Um, as well as some intercontinental competitions uh, so yeah thanks for joining me guys really appreciate it uh, if you enjoyed this episode please share it with your friends and uh, review and like and retweet and share it uh, and we'll see you next week thanks guys bye <laughs>